The Compulsive Storyteller is a podcast of crazy true stories that you won't believe could happen to anyone, let alone the same person. It's got deceptions and subversions, infidelity and infiltrations, bad actors and actresses, sucker punches and belly laughs, cops, creeps, and criminals, all served up along with a cast of good characters. Episodes are short, 5 to 15 minutes, perfect for a break in your day. The Compulsive Storyteller proves over and over that truth can be stranger than fiction. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let me share a podcast I just discovered. It's called Two Lives. On each episode, you'll hear about someone who's faced darkness and how that moment transformed them. The title comes from the quote, We all have two lives. The second begins the moment we realize we only have one. It's a character-driven, non-fiction storytelling podcast that's been featured on Apple and Spotify and was a finalist in the International Women's Podcast Awards. Listen now on your favorite podcast app or at twolives.org. This week's episode is entitled The Tiananmen Tea Hustle. The Tiananmen Tea Hustle. It's 2013, and I can't believe I've just passed through the checkpoint into Tiananmen Square, and already I'm in trouble. Just inside the gate, there are three soldiers standing in attention on small elevated platforms, each dressed in a perfectly pressed green army uniform with gold buttons, a white sash, and a holster. Only their eyes are moving while they harshly examine passers-by. It occurs to me that this is a classic means of communist intimidation and control from the old days to ferret out who might meet their eyes as a provocation. I decide to look back, not in a challenging way, but just briefly hold their gaze. Very bad idea. All three jumped down from their perches, scolding me loudly in Chinese. The only English word that they speak is passport. They proceed to push me back and forth between them, their voices getting louder and louder. I'm not going to give you my passport, I say, which of course they don't understand. Just then, a Chinese man dressed in a business suit addresses me in English. Excuse me, what's going on here? I made the mistake of looking back into the guards' eyes, and they surrounded me, demanding my passport. Why on earth would you do that? Are you crazy? No, I was just curious to see what would happen. Well, I guess you found out. So here's what's going to happen unless you want to end up in jail. I'm all ears, I say, and I appreciate your help. I'm going to tell them that you're just some stupid American and that you're sorry. When I look at you, you're going to bend forward in a bow and say you're very sorry in Chinese, which is pronounced Woken Bao Tian. Okay? You think you can do that? I respond yes, then I bow forward, not too sure how deeply to bow, nor for how long. Then I say, Woken Bao Tian. He then speaks with them at length, and I hear the word passport many times, but apparently he somehow dissuades them from examining my passport. As we are released and walk away, he says, For God's sakes, don't look back. Sir, thank you so much. He shakes his head back and forth in disgust and starts off across the wide plaza without saying goodbye or looking back at me. I'm a bit disgusted myself and start to cross the vast, expansive square. There are no benches or places for me to sit down and recover. As I wander aimlessly, I'm approached by two middle-aged Chinese women, one on either side. One of them asks me in reasonably good English, Excuse me, can we practice our English with you? I guess I'm a bit dazed, so I acquiesce, at which point they both take me firmly, one on either arm. Why don't we go for some tea? The other one asks. Sorry, I'm not interested, I respond. Please join us. You will enjoy yourself. 
By now I'm annoyed and firmly say no and wrench both arms free. As I walk on, they both say, Please. But I ignore them and say to myself, Wow, two bad experiences in less than 20 minutes. After the tea ladies, I crossed the wide plaza to check out all the security features that had been erected since the student protests that broke out early in June of 1989, when hundreds and possibly thousands of unarmed protesters were massacred in the square by Chinese troops using machine guns, tanks, and other weapons. The most iconic image from that moment features a man dressed in white standing directly in the path of a huge Chinese tank, refusing to give way. The government has never acknowledged these events and has jailed anyone who publicly refers to them or attempts to celebrate their anniversary. They even arrested people gathering for an anniversary event in Hong Kong. After the June 5th events, the government constructed an elaborate protective wall, X-ray checkpoint stations, and CCTV at many places surrounding and within the perimeter of the square. In some instances, the cameras have been installed in close proximity to the many social realist sculptures enshrining groups of glorious workers determinedly charging into the future. All these cameras intertwined with these traditional images of the revolution is a perfect metaphor for where the Chinese state is today. I head for the gate at the other end of Tiananmen Square, having heard there's an interesting ancient dilapidated village outside the gates, which is one of the oldest parts of the city and is slated for demolition. Just before reaching the gate, I'm approached by a very attractive woman in a white fuzzy cashmere sweater and a short black skirt. She has a strikingly pretty, very broad face and tells me that she's from Mongolia. She asks me where I'm headed, and when I describe the old village, she warns me that I should be careful there with my expensive camera equipment. She then offers to accompany me, adding that she's going that way anyway. Curiously, after we've walked through a number of narrow back alleyways of the district, she speaks to me in Chinese several times, even though she's already asked me if I speak the language, and I respond I do not several times. The back streets and byways are fascinating from a photographic point of view. We stop by an abandoned sculpture studio where a jumble of old moles and broken sculptures make for a great subject. She's curious about my interest in all the different colored mops put out to dry by nearly every ancient doorway. They seem to be everywhere. She even poses for me, comically brandishing one like a weapon, and I take a shot. I have to admit that in such a dynamic pose, she looks fantastic. When we come to the far end of the neighborhood, there's a more contemporary square, and I notice a large restaurant and invite her to lunch. The restaurants in many parts of China are different from those in the West. Most consist of a series of small private dining rooms, often on both sides of a hallway. After she speaks in Chinese to the woman at the front desk, we're shown to the last dining room down the hall. Her deliberations with the woman in front seem almost like a negotiation, but you know, what do I know? My new friend suggests we order a bottle of wine, sadly a very sweet red wine, and a variety of pastries to be finished off with a pot of special Chinese tea. She then gets up and puts some contemporary Chinese pop music on the sound system. The wine and sweets arrive. She sits close to me on the couch and pours us both a glass of wine, offering up a Mongolian toast, which I can't quite pronounce correctly, and we both laugh. As she snuggles in, and I think this is too good to be true, it occurs to me that it probably is. We drink, we dance, we hug, and bump and grind, but I avoid her kisses. After a lovely afternoon together, the special Chinese tea arrives in a very ornate pot. 
I'm in a bit of a stupor, so this strong tea is a welcome pick-me-up. When the check arrives, I barely look at it and take out my credit card. It's for 4,719 yuan, but it's written in sloppy Chinese, so I barely notice the total, but my date does. She is furious and calls back the server, chiding him in Chinese. They go back and forth a while, then he leaves. She does a little math and shares that they've charged us 750 US dollars for the tea alone and 790 for the entire bill. She apologizes and suggests that I refuse to pay because it's such a ripoff. He comes back and I refuse to pay $750 for the pot of tea. He leaves and in his stead, two big rough-looking Chinese men enter the room. She stands up to them, at which point one of them shoves her. Then I stand up and they grab me and insist that I pay or I'll be forced to stay until I do. They then leave and lock the door. We have a discussion and again she profusely apologizes then suggests that I pay with my credit card and cancel the transaction afterwards. The enforcers are called back and they leave to charge my Chase credit card. I sign the receipt and think that we're done. But no, they return again to tell me that the card has been declined, so I give them my USAA credit card instead. This one works and we're released from the restaurant, but not without a few more harsh words from my date to the management. She's been so helpful in sticking up for me that I invite her to dinner. She suggests a restaurant near where I am staying, and as we discuss what time to meet, I joke, no more tea, though, and we both laugh. Seven o'clock comes and goes, and she doesn't show up. After an hour's wait, while heading back to the hotel, I stop into a primitive internet cafe. When I Google Tiananmen and tea, the first thing that comes up is a sponsored review of Tiananmen Square by TripAdvisor, headlined, Tea scam in the square that leads me to many other entries and even a YouTube video about the Tiananmen tea hustle. Back in my hotel room, I blow a small fortune on my hotel phone bill trying to put a hold on both the credit card charges. It turns out that the restaurant ran each of my cards twice. Then I lay in bed, staring at the ceiling, reviewing my afternoon and becoming more and more suspicious of my Mongolian friend. Why did she ask several times if I spoke Chinese? Why did she deliberate for so long with the woman at the door of the restaurant? And most importantly, why hadn't she showed up for our dinner date? Maybe because she thought I might bring the police. The thing I couldn't figure out was that I was the one who'd chosen the restaurant after a long, meandering walk. So how could she have been in league with a restaurant that she didn't even know? In my research since that time, I've learned that the tea hustle is a systematic problem with a whole larger Tiananmen neighborhood cooperating. All the different restaurants and tea shops know the drill, and any real negotiation is done in Chinese to determine the cut between the lady bringing in the tourists and the restaurant. At the end of my single day in Tiananmen, I'd managed to get slapped around by three federal police officers, get duped by both a pair and a single tea hustler, and incur a credit card debt of thousands of dollars. Not bad for a reasonably intelligent guy. Later, back in the States, Chase Bank canceled the $6,000 worth of charges right away, but USAA took months and many phone calls to make good on their cancellation. The reason I went to China in the first place was for an exhibition of my photography at a museum in Beijing. After a lifetime of reading the New York Times, all my knowledge of the country was based on a multitude of negative articles about the communist state. So the Tiananmen tea hustle should not have been a surprise. 
However, the vast majority of the Chinese people that I've dealt with in the art world were lovely. They seemed to be happy and well-adjusted, though not without a mischievous sense of humor. They have a tradition of toasting at various social events using small shot glasses of beer so there can be toast after toast and no one gets too drunk. Often, after many long-winded toasts in my honor, accompanied by much laughter, when I ask for a translation, there are just a few words of explanation, which leaves me with the feeling that maybe they too are making fun of the stupid American. Just like the businessman who saved my ass in Tiananmen Square. Are you ready to tell your own story on The Compulsive Storyteller? We're launching a new segment of guest storytelling, and we want to hear your stories. Email a voice recording to hello at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. I'll play selected stories on upcoming episodes. Try to be as clear as possible in your recording, and we reserve the right to lightly edit them for length and clarity. Leave your name or contact information in your voicemail or email, and let us know if you'd like the story to be anonymous. I can't wait to hear from you. The Compulsive Storyteller is now co-produced by Greg Lefebvre and Fadia Monserrath, who's also arranged the music and created the special effects. Emily Ramon does design, research, editing, and marketing. Peter Kakoma has made our theme music and for many seasons co-produced the show with me. If you enjoyed this week's episode, let us know. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Compulsive Storyteller, and we'd love to hear from you. This podcast is independently produced, so we really appreciate all your help and support. Share the show with your friends, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. You can also check out our website, thecompulsivestoryteller.com, for more information. Thanks for listening, and if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story. All characters and events portrayed in this podcast are based on my truth, with some names and facts changed for privacy. The conversations and dialogues are based on my best memory, but are not word-for-word -word recreations. 